Good morning. How are you? Good to see you in God's house. Did you go outside yesterday? Yes. It was awesome for that one day. One day. So I just lived outside uh, yesterday. I, you know, in the yard, cutting, trimming, putting out all the seed and just having fun, having fun. Uh, then I had to come to work today. So that's good to have you in God's house. We're studying Romans. We are in chapter nine. If you'd like to turn there. We have turned a huge corner, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 to 5. Let's pray this morning. Uh, God, we uh, give you uh, the next 30 minutes, uh, and may our understanding of your unique relationship with Israel as uh, formulated uh, in the Old Testament, uh, may we have a deeper understanding of that and how that pertains to us uh, as members of the church today, and uh, help us to understand uh, just the, the need that we have to be uh, like Paul, uh, sharing our love with those uh, who don't know you and, and calling them to entrust their lives uh, to you, lives of faith, so they can be saved. Um, just thank you for the opportunity to, to look at Paul's heart today. May we be impassioned by it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, today's uh, sermon is going to be a little bit more pedantic than normal, so I'm not going to start out with your typical introduction. Uh, so I'm going to present to you uh, my outline, uh, which is going to be a little bit different than normal. Um, I like outlines, uh, but this one's going to be a not so much preaching-oriented kind of outline because uh, Romans 9 through 11 is, a, is, a, is a totally different than the rest of the book. So I need to kind of lay the foundation for studying Romans 9 through 11. Uh, and so it's be a little bit more teaching-oriented today than, than normal. So what I'm going to do is first look at what I would call as the placement of this particular section of, of literature. So Romans 9 through 11, uh, the, the theme of the book changes at this point, as it were. Uh, and uh, Paul's going to uh, entertain some questions here from Jews within the, inside the Roman church. And so if you're a Gentile right now, how many Gentiles are here? Yeah, there's a few, a few of them. Uh, if you're a Gentile today, don't, don't, don't think, this is totally not for me. Why am I here? Uh, it's the word of God. All of it is inspired. It's all profitable for instruction, etc. Uh, and, and you can learn much from what Paul's going to say to his Jewish brethren in this passage. Uh, but we want to look first at the placement of this, of this particular section uh, in light of the kinds of theological questions Paul's going to an, uh, ask and answer here. Uh, and what I'd like to do is begin first by uh, saying, what do you do when you have a troublesome, complex theological question? Who do you call? What do you do? You call Marty, or 1-800-MARTY, yeah, uh, you call me. At least the front row calls Marty. Uh, I get lots of emails during the week, people, because uh, we, we, we lose 20% of our membership every year because the government or the military moves them, and so we end up with parishioners all over the place, uh, and they, they continually send me questions, uh, and, and, uh, and so it keeps me busy, uh, and, uh, but I wouldn't say that would be the first thing to do. Here, here's, what I, here's some pastoral advice. And the reason why I'm giving you this advice is because Paul's going to entertain questions from the, from the church in Rome uh, of a theological nature. And so uh, we'll, we'll get at those kind of questions in just a minute. But I want to first preface that by saying, when you have a theological question, what do you do? So here, here would be my advice for you. If you're taking notes, now's the time to commence writing. Number one, pray for God to give you illumination. Long before you would talk to me, pray for God to give you illumination. Why? Because as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and he's with you. He's there to teach you. I talk to him quite a bit. Uh, and so you need to talk to the Spirit of God and say, what do you, I don't understand this. This seems incongruous with what I read over here. Could you help me connect the dots? I don't mean, this is kind of cryptic. What does this mean, etc.? Uh, you should be talking to him for illumination. And trust me, after 
talking to God about the scriptures since I was nine. Uh, it's amazing when the lights come on and he connects the dots because he speaks in a profound way. Number two, the first one is what? Pray for elimination. Two, uh, read your Bible. <laughs> yeah, you have one? You have a Bible? Yeah, you should read it. What happens when you read it? Wow, I never knew that was in here. That happens to me. It's like, I didn't know that was in here. Uh, when you read your Bible, all, all of a sudden, you run into things, stories from the Old Testament, something in the Psalter, something, where God will take the question that you have, and he will answer it for you as you read your Bible. You'll have one of those moments where you kind of smile, and you'll, Marty said this was going to happen. That's exactly what happens. So read your Bible. First one is? Pray. Two, read your Bible. Three, read a systematic theology. But there's another question before that. What? is a systematic theology. How many haven't a clue as to what is a systematic? what? You have no idea what I just said. How many? Don't be afraid to say, I have no idea. Okay, great, great. Um, So a systematic theology means a theology that's systematic. Thank you. Hallelujah. Uh, No, systematic theology. Okay, so this is a DC culture. We love systems, do we not? That's how this place operates, right? So systematic theology. So take all the great doctrines of the Bible, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of man, uh, the doctrine of Jesus, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of end times, the doctrine of the church. Pick a, pick a doctrine. Uh, what the systematic theology does is it takes all the Bible verses that relate to those concepts and it systematizes them. Angelology, I'm gonna study angels, elect and evil. So if I don't look at demons, and how they're stratified in rank and what they do and their methodologies and their strategy, I will read a systematic theology to then see how's the devil operate. Well, it summarizes the entire Bible's notion of the devil that way. And it will also look at elect angels, what they do. So a systematic theology organizes all the Bibles in one place under one heading. That's awesome. Uh, I read systematic theologies all the time, always have, because they teach you Uh, Like if you have questions about the existence of God, it will go through the teleological, the cosmological, the moral arguments. It goes through all of those things in one place. That's awesome. Do you own one? Okay, so uh, not that I work for these people, but Dr. Charles Riby was the head of systematic theology at Dallas Seminary, uh, where I attended. Uh, He has a really good one. Uh, It's great for lay people. I wouldn't say it's short. Most of them aren't. Uh, but it, some of them are more median than others. Uh, this is a really good one. It's kind of middle of the road. It's called basic theology. Basic theology. That's a great one to read. It's a great one to own. Um, now, if you are from the Reformed position, like say you're a five-point Calvinist, and I can't, I can't get into what all that means, but if that's you, how many would say that's me? Confession. You don't know what that means. Okay, great. Don't worry about it, okay? But, but if that's to you, uh, you would want to read Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine. I got a copy. I've been reading it. I'm not a Calvinist, to a five-pointer, but I do read the opposing viewpoints, uh, and it stretches your mind and your thinking and et cetera. So that's another great one to own. So I had a husband and wife in the last service. Uh, he's Reformed. She's not Reformed. She's buying both those systematic theologies so they can both get their needs met. Nice. Marriage enrichment. I'm just saying. <laughs> Uh, next, read books on the subject, whatever your subject is. So if you're re- studying uh, the concept of war in the Old Testament, uh, because God did call for holy war, it's called hachreim in the Old Testament, uh, God was a warrior God. Judgment. Judgment. It's like, why did he do that? Uh, there's a really good book on that subject uh, by uh, Paul Copan, uh, C-O-P-A-N, called Is God a Moral Monster? That's an excellent book. 
Because when I was uh, starting PhD studies in Hebrew uh, back in uh, 85, um, I had to write a 60-page paper on the concept of holy war in the Old Testament. This is a great book to help you think through that, especially if you're in the military. Uh, talk with other Christians who might be more knowledgeable than you uh, and pick their brain. That's a great thing to do. And if uh, somebody comes to, to, uh, to me and asks me Bible questions, I usually give them books to read or I give them ar uh, articles to read. If you have a question, I give you articles to read. What should you do? Read them. One lady came to me with a complex issue, theological of nature. I gave her six periodical articles to read. She went away for a couple of weeks, came back in my office, had an appointment, everything, sat down and said, I am still so troubled with that issue. What's my question? Did you read the articles? Her answer? No, I didn't read them. I want you to explain them to me. That's not the way this works. Uh, I had to learn. I had to think through these things. You need to learn. You need to think through these things. You read. You think. And then we'll get together and we'll talk about it. Why are we talking about Bible questions of theology? Complex questions. Because Paul, the master educator, is a great teacher. Why? Because he can anticipate questions the student would ask. That's how you can identify a great pastor or a great Bible teacher. You're sitting there thinking, we're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. But there's other people in the room. It's like, he must have had like a drone flying over my life this week etc. And this is Paul. He is speaking to the church in Rome comprised of Jews and Gentiles, but he, a Jew who's converted to Christ, understands Jewish questions because he used to be one who followed Judaism because he was a rabbi. So he has waxed eloquent in the first eight chapters on a variety of topics, i.e. like all men are born sinners, Jews and Gentiles, right? That sinners, Jews and Gentiles, don't get saved unless they come by way of Christ the Messiah. Right? Justification by faith in the Messiah's work, not in your work. He's also uh, talked in the first eight chapters about how Jewish pedigree doesn't get you saved. Just because your mom and dad were Jews doesn't mean you're saved, ipso facto. Just because you have the Torah scrolls in your, in your living room and you kiss them every night before you go to bed doesn't mean you're saved. Just because you have a mezuzah outside your door and you kiss it before you walk inside the, the house doesn't mean you're saved. No, you have to come by way of Jesus. And he said in the first eight chapters that, uh, that uh, it, when God uh, chooses you, because election is in the Bible as we talked about, when God chooses you to be saved and you respond to the gospel in faith, uh, he adopts you into his family and he never unadopts you. You're his child forever. And he foreknows you and he predestines you and all the things that he talks about in chapter eight. Your salvation is secure because God makes it secure. So that all leads to a, a Gentile going, this is awesome. A Jew would be saying, uh, I have some questions. Yeah, uh, my Jewish guide in Israel, uh, Asher Ashkenazi, he told me if you put two Jewish individuals in a room, you have 20 questions and 20 opinions. And that's from him because they're very inquisitive. And so here's the question they would be asking according to the Apostle Paul. Since God is now working through the, the church, Paul, as you say, uh, which is composed of Jews and Gentiles, Paul, as you say, does that mean that God is finished with his prior plan to the Jewish nation? I mean, that's what the Old Testament said. And we're listening to you, Paul, about justification by faith and Jewish pedigree doesn't matter. Does that mean that God is finished with Israel as a nation? We're kind of wondering. So in chapter 11, Paul gets to the question at hand. It just takes him a few chapters to get there. Kind of sounds like my preaching occasionally. It takes a little while to get to what I want to talk about. Notice chapter 11, what does Paul say? He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people. Has he? Answer to the rhetorical question is no, no. And then he says, may it never be. In Greek, it's meganoito, which means there is no way that will possibly ever happen. 
He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Has God rejected Israel? Paul says, no, 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 he hasn't. Paul says, I have anticipated the question that you think if God's working with the church, he forgot about Israel. The answer to the question is, no, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. Another uh, question. Since God appears to have reneged on his unconditional promises uh, to the Jewish people with this new gospel, Paul, that you speak about, how do you know that God is not going to renege on his promises to the church? Seems like he's reneged on his promises to Israel because it doesn't seem like he's fulfilling them because now he's got the church. So how do you know as a member of the church he won't do the same thing to you? Number three, third question. If God now, now desires to save an individual Jew by faith in Jesus the Messiah, well, what about the nation of Israel? Because it says in Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, he's going to save the nation. Does God lie? What about national salvation? You're talking about individual salvation. These are questions Paul's going to answer. So when you're choosing a church, what kind of church do you want to pick? Do you want a church that bypasses questions or a church that answers questions? I don't know about you. I mean, I want, the, I want them to answer questions. Uh, uh, exegetical expositional preaching is verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter, etc. Right? Line by line, preposition by preposition, etc. Right? Now, one of the difficulties of that is um, if you come to hard text, you can't, as the pastor, go around them. Right? Because if I skipped like uh, the end of chapter 8 about doc uh, the doctrine of predestination, election, the foreknowledge of God, etc., somebody would have certainly asked me after, between the services, hey, why'd you skip those chapters? Wouldn't, wouldn't you? Yeah, it would. So Paul says, I don't want to skip anything that's hard, so I'm going to stop and talk to my Jewish brethren about these questions that I know that you're thinking, because as I've taught all over the world in synagogues, these are the kind of questions that I have to entertain. So there was an argument going on in the church in Rome between the Jews and the Gentiles. Here's how the argument went. The Gentiles told the Jews, we are saved by faith in Jesus. You know, God's done with Israel. Get over it. Move on. Huh? The Jews were saying, on the other hand, hey, God chose us first before he chose you. How could God forget about us? Well, where's the place of Israel in God's plan if he's sovereign? So Paul's going to talk about uh, that in the first, uh, oh, well, these three chapters. He's going to begin to address it in chapter 9, uh, and he's going to do it in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. This is what I would call the point of the immediate context. So the placement of the context, the point of the immediate context. When you read this uh, chapter here, it just kind of, remember there's no verses or chapters in the original Greek text. They just kind of all flowed together before they put in notation. So uh, verse 1 of chapter 9 he, he just jumps right in with no connective word, which is really odd because when Paul typically argues and develops his case, he uses the word therefore quite often or he asks a Socratic question. Here he just jumps right into a major topic by saying, I am telling the truth in Christ. What are you saying? I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. He doesn't finish the sentence. He doesn't tell you, who he's anguished over. He doesn't do that till later. Why does he do that? Because he's emotional. He says, for I could, I could wish that I myself were a curse separated for Christ, from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Uh, who are they? Well, they're my kinsmen according to the flesh. Who are they? They're Israelites. To whom belongs, notice the things. 
the adoption of sons, the glory of the covenants, uh, the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises, who are, whose are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc., and from whom is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, according to the flesh, who is all over all, God is blessed forever. He says, let me start out by saying, uh, the point of this media section is something dear to my heart, and it's my people, my people Israel. Now, if you're a Gentile, you're thinking, well, that doesn't pertain to me. Yo, yes, it does. How does it pertain to you? It asks you this applicational question. Who of my people am I passionate about for Christ and the gospel, like Paul? See, he's compassionate for his Jewish brethren and for Gentiles, because he's the apostle to Gentiles, but he hasn't forgotten the Jew. See, who have you forgotten? That's the question. Who have you not prayed for? We'll get to that in just a minute. So the point immediate section is to lay the groundwork for um, the premise that I want to talk about this morning. We have finally gotten there. <sighs> you with me or did I lose you? Okay, so what's the premise of what we want to talk about? We'll put it up on the, the board so you can see. You want to read it with me? Those who reject the gospel should be the what? Object of your bold witness. Those who reject the gospel, Jew or Gentile, should be the object of your bold witness. Uh, Paul shows you the premise of that statement from this passage in two ways. Number one, verses one to three, he says, uh, when you go after those who don't know Christ, Jew or Gentile, uh, he said, you must show your passion. You must share your passion. That's what he does in the first three verses. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Uh, the word truth, aletheia, Alethion in Greek is the very first word in the sentence. It's out of word order, which if you're a Greek reader and you read it out of word order, you know exactly why he threw it there. He says, let me put truth, Alethion, first in the sentence so that you will know I am underscoring the fact that what I'm going to say has no lie or falsity about it whatsoever. And then he says, this truth I'm going to tell you is in Christ. Notice the preposition, in Christ. That's the sphere of Christ. So if you do a giant circle, uh, and Christ is the essence of the circle. And Paul says, I am in that giant circle as a Christian. Who would lie in the presence of Christ himself? Uh, nobody. And he says, uh, you can bank on the fact that what I'm going to share with you, Jewish people uh, and Gentiles who are listening, is, uh, is the essence of truth because I'm inside of Christ himself, in, in, in the body of Christ, as it were. He says, I'm not lying, and my conscience testifies with me uh, in the Holy Spirit. You have a conscience? Didn't you like Jiminy Cricket? Jiminy Cricket. How many know Jiminy Cricket? Oh, praise God. He's not in the Bible, but he's in American culture. So like, what, what is Jiminy Cricket really, what is he known for? His little song. Let your conscience be your guide. Right, right. So have you heard your conscience? Are you hearing voices? Don't tell me. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, what's your conscience do? You're about to do something you're not supposed to do. It's that inner voice that comes in and says do it. No, that's the devil. That's your flesh. It's, it's that what comes in and says, you shouldn't be doing that. We all have a conscience. Shouldn't be doing that. Uh, and, and, then, uh, and then you got, you know, your carnal nature on the other side going, it's a boundary. God has so many boundaries. Just go past the boundary. You'll enjoy life so much more. No, you won't. So it's that inner voice. Paul says, my conscience testifies with me. And this conscience is uh, motivated by the Holy Spirit. So every which way possible, he tells you, this is the truth. I was in the movie one night. Uh, you know how when you see a movie, the trailer, and it looks really great, funny, whatever, and you go, and it's not what you thought? This happened to you? Yeah, yeah. So I'm in there and watching a movie with Liz and Nathan, and we're sitting there watching, and it went south on us big time. <clears throat> 
I'm getting uncomfortable. The place is packed. Uh, and so I, I, I looked at Nathan. I looked at Liz and I said, I, I think we're leaving. You know, I want my money back. I'm going to the popcorn stand telling them I need my money back. <clears throat> so, so we got up because <clears throat> the conscience was telling me time to leave. So I got up and left. That was the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't be in here. So I got up and left. So we walked out and as we got up, uh, several rows behind us, we didn't know they were sitting there, was another couple from church. So they saw me walk out. What do you think they did? They walked out. They joined us in the foyer to get our money back. And the lady told me, we were just waiting to see what you were going to (laughs) do. Welcome to my world. She. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can't even get gas and not run into somebody, you know, or the restaurant or whatever. Um, So that's the conscience. And Paul says, hey, let me, let me just tell you, my, my conscience is telling me that what I'm going to tell you is absolute truth. I have no qualms about it whatsoever. Uh, and he says, what, what, do I, what do I need to tell you? That, he says, I have anguish and pain for Jewish people. Anguish is the word in John 16, 21, uh, the Hebrew word or Greek word, which is used for childbirth. He said, if it could be equated with pain, it'd be like that kind of pain. When I think about my Jewish brethren that don't know Christ as the Messiah, it's not like, hey, that's too bad for them. He said, I have anguish over this, uh, emotional anguish. Notice what he says. He says, it's a, it's a conditional concept. He says, if it, were, if it was possible, like if I could wish myself accursed, I would do it if they could get saved. Accursed, anathema is the Greek word. I mean, the last thing you want to be before God is cursed. He said, it would be possible for God to curse me, which it's not, because remember in, in John, or Romans 8, he talked about adoption as a forever thing. But if it was possible that God could curse me and save them, I would step in and in for them and let them walk into heaven and I would go to hell. I would do it if it was possible. That's how much I love them. And he said, I would be separated for Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He said, if you could take me as a Christian who's part of Jesus, I'm adopted you know, into his family and in my faith justifies me forever. But if it was possible for God to look down from heaven and say, Paul, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you out of heaven and, and you're not going to be there, but, but all these Jews are going to come in be, because of you. Would you do it? He said, I would do it. I would do it. You know, this, is, this, is, this has caught my attention all week because you have to look at this and ask yourself, am I that passionate toward the lost in my life? You know, am I that passionate to where I have anguish over them, I have sorrow over them not knowing God? Do I even pray for them by name? Do I even know who it is that I should be praying for? Or are you just busy with your life, learning more theology, studying Bible studies, going to prayer meetings, etc.? And you never really have time for the lost. Paul says, I am consumed when I think about my people who don't know Christ. Has anybody ever been baptized because you shared Christ with them? When's the last time you ever led anybody to Christ? Well, I just let the pastor do that. No, it's all of our jobs. I share my faith. Here, here are some prayers to be praying in light of what Paul has said here about his passion for the Jewish people. Three things you should pray. Number one, God, put in my heart a burning passion for the lost around me. Forgive me for not having it. Put it in my heart. Number two, place on my, name, on my heart a name of a person I should pray for. Maybe a husband, maybe an aunt, an uncle, somebody you work with, somebody that is your boss that you really don't like them because they're caustic and controlling. No, I need to pray for them. Number two, a name. And then number three, God, give me an opportunity. Give me an opportunity to be bold and courageous. That's what Paul did. 
He said, I had, a, I had a desire to save those in my own nation. We should also have the same desire to go after those who do not know Christ. And as you're thinking about what you're going to do, as you sense a desire to have a greater passion, which I can totally relate to, you can always have a greater passion for the lost. You should sense the problem that is at hand. That's what the second thing Paul does. He goes, there's a problem when it comes to Israel. The problem is he's going to present it first in a positive format, and then I'll explain to you the negative side of the problem. Positive side, he says in verse 4, when he thinks about his Jewish brethren, he says, well, who are they? He says, they are Israelites. This is the first time he's used that term in the book. He's been calling them Jews up to this point, like in chapter 2. Now he switches, and he doesn't use the term Jew anymore. In the next three chapters, he uses the word Israelite, which leads to a hermeneutical question. You would want to ask what? What's the difference? Or at least note that he changed. I mean, why is he calling them Israelites and he's not calling them Jews? Because he's talking about the nation who received the promises from God, who became the people of God first before the church ever came along. And so he's calling them the Israelites. They're God's people. Is God through with the Israelites? His answer is, uh, no, no. He says, uh, what kind of privileges did God give them as a, as a people? Well, he's going to list seven of them. And we'll click down through them. Each one of them could be a Bible study in and of itself. In fact, I've had entire semester classes of these in graduate school on just one of them. So we'll just touch upon the things that he says. What, what was unique about the privileges of the Jewish people? Number one, he says uh, Israel was called God's son, adopted son. Now, it's true, you can go out throughout the Old Testament and not find the fact anywhere in the Old Testament where it says God adopted Israel. It doesn't say that. It says he adopted believers into the church, Romans 8, but it doesn't say he adopted Israel, but, but he did because they weren't his son originally. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, uh, God speaking to Moses, and what's he tell him? When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I have called who? My son. Who is Israel? They became the people of God in a major way post-Exodus. He called them his people, baptized them in the Red Sea, part of the Red Sea, redeemed them, brought redemption to them through Passover, etc. Uh, they became his people. They, they were then called his son in a major way. And if you read Exodus 19, they were also to be his priest to the world. Uh, number two, he says that they also had what he calls the glory, not a glory, but the glory. Because if it's indefinite, it could be any kind of glory. But if it's the glory, well, then you have to look at why is the article so important? Well, he's telling you there's nothing like the glory that they saw. So we would grammatically classify this as like the monadic use of the article in Greek grammar. There's the one and only glory. What's the one and only glory from the Old Testament? Anybody knows that reads their Bible. What's the one and only glory from the Old Testament? The glory of who? The Shekinah glory of who? God Almighty, the Shekinah glory of God. So that when you see God, he's this brilliant eminence that is just, you almost can't even look his direction. It's like looking at the sun. He's brighter than the sun. It's the glory. They saw the glory. No other religion on the planet has seen the glory. They did. When did they see the glory? Multiple situations. This is test time, Bible trivia. When did they see it? Mount Sinai? Remember, there's no clouds in Sinai. A cloud bank forms around Mount Sinai. Thunder, lightning, and the Shekinah illuminates it. And people are like, Moses, you go up there. We don't want to go up there. You know, they and then they had the tabernacle. 
the place to worship God. Pillar of fire comes down, hovers and spins and whirls at night over the tabernacle. They can see, mommy, where's God? Uh, honey, just look over there. <laughs> yeah, he's right there in that pillar, fire. Uh, uh, when he filled the tabernacle proper, when they finished it, drove everybody out from the priests that had to run for their lives because of the glory of God. When they built the temple, same thing when Solomon dedicated, the, the glory of God filled the temple and drove all the priests out of the temple, the glory of God. They saw the glory. I tell you, I've done a lot of reading in, in other religions, and the thing that's missing from many, uh, many things are missing from them. Many, the one main thing that's missing from them, they never saw the glory like, like the Israelites did. Number, talk about a privilege. Number three, they had the covenants. How many covenants were there in the Old Testament? Test time. Not one, not six. Five. Five, primarily. You're close. Uh, well, what were they? They had the covenant. So God, what is a covenant, by the way? You have an idea what a covenant is. Anybody know what a covenant is? How many don't know what a covenant is? Okay, so uh, the word berit means to cut. So it's like you cut a deal. When you go buy a car, you cut a deal. Did you not? Boy, did you. <laughs> yeah, I cut a deal on a car one time, and I didn't realize what the APR was because I didn't ask. It was 16.9%. That was a deal. Not for me. Not for me. So I read the fine print now. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a smarter guy. So a, a covenant is a deal that God cuts with mankind. But he did it with Israel first. And by the way, why did he choose them in, anyway? Well, it says in Deuteronomy 7, he didn't choose them because they're the greatest people on the planet, the wealthiest, etc. No, he chose them because they're the, well, they're kind of the, like the leftovers on the planet. But he had a heart and a passion for them, the underdogs. So he gave them covenants. Uh, how many? Well, Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12 that Abraham would be the father of a great nation, that God would bless him, God would bless those who blessed the nation of Israel, and he would curse those who cursed the nation of Israel. I don't think our politicians in the world have quite got that premise yet. That, that, that's an unconditional promise that transcends time. Another sermon altogether. Um, they had the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant with land parameters. That would be, this would be their land. Palestinian covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30. These were the land parameters of Palestine. Number three, the Mosaic Covenant, conditional in nature, Exodus 19 to 31. God said, let me tell you exactly how to live. Mosaic Covenant. Davidic Covenants, uh, 2 Samuel 7, God would bring them a Davidic king to reign over the empire, over the land of Abraham for eternity. Davidic king, Davidic Covenant. And then there's the, I love, Jeremiah 30, 31, well, was the, uh, the new covenant, that he would give Israel a new heart. And he's not talking about the church. It says Israel. And it's like uh, uh, Dr. Fa Charles Feinberg that used to teach Hebrew at Talbot Seminary said years ago, hermeneutic principle for Bible study methods is really simple. If the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. If it says Israel, guess what? It's Israel. That's chapter three, that was point three. They had the covenants. Number four, they had the law. They had the Torah. What did the law tell them? Well, the law told them where to worship God, the tabernacle, how to approach God, blood sacrifice, and then how to live a moral life. Just read Leviticus and you'll see what I mean. They have the law. Five, they had divinely ordained worship. God said, oh, you want to approach me on the day of, uh, of atonement, Yom Kippur? Let me tell you how to do it. Read Leviticus 16. I'll tell you exactly how to approach me on, the, on that particular day. They had worship ordained by God. Number six, they had what Paul calls promises from God. Promises. Promises to Abraham that he'd be a great man, a great nation, Isaac, Jacob, etc that they would have great names, that they would be a channel of blessing to the world. The only problem was they became a bucket of the blessing, not a channel. 
but they had the promises. And number seven, Paul says, let me tell you, you actually had the Messiah walk among you. As prophesied. Remember Isaiah 7, 14 said, God will come dwell among you, and he did. Micah chapter five, verse two says, the eternal one will be born in Bethlehem. He, he was born there, etc." Psalm two says he'll be the great Davidic king, and he was, when you study uh, like Matthew one, his genealogy goes back to David. I mean, he's the king, he's the Messiah. You actually had the Messiah. Talk about privileges, but what did Israel do with the privileges? They just threw them away. They threw them away. Paul, Paul's point is this. Number one, he's saying God's providential gifts to you uh, were from his good hand. Do you think those unconditional gifts he's given to you as a people, he will, he will renege on in the future? The answer is no. God, by definition of who he is, cannot break that which he's promised unconditionally. He cannot, and he won't, Paul says. He's not done with Israel as a nation. But how did Israel respond to the privileges of God? Well, Jeremiah tells us before the nation fell, in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25, here's what he says. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets. What were they doing? Daily rising early and sending them. Yet they, the nation, did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did evil more than their fathers. And you shall speak to them all of these words, Jeremiah, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer to, them, to you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. What they do with the wonderful privileges from God? They rejected them outright and lived for themselves. When the Messiah comes and they reject him, he goes on a mountain near the, the, the Holy Mount and he prays and weeps over the city. Does he not before he's crucified? What's he say? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who are they? Well, you killed the prophets and the, and the stones who are sent to her. How often Jesus said, I wanted to gather you together like children, uh, the way that a hen gathers her chicks in the wings, and you, you weren't willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Why? Because you're gonna kill the Messiah. You should have embraced me. I would have saved you. Saved you how? I would have redeemed you as I prophesied in the Old Testament. But they rejected him. Is God finished with Israel? No, he has a wonderful plan for them in the future. Uh, now the church is composed of Jew and Gentile. That's his plan now. But his providence started with them. He called them first. He's not done with them as he's going to talk about. But Paul says, my passion is that they would be saved. I pray for them. When I think about this passage, I think about the phone calls that I get because I got contacted by an individual this week, which it really pertains to this. It kind of goes something like this. Uh, my child was raised in the church, had great, great pastors, great youth pastors, exposed to the Bible, prayed for them, took them to youth events, went on mission trips, except blah, 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 blah. But then now they have taken what I've given to them and they, I don't need that anymore. Foolish thing to do, is it not? See, this is what the Jews did. God said, I gave you all these things and you threw them to the wind because you wanted sin more than you wanted to follow me. What's the wise thing to do? Follow God, follow God and come to know God through Christ. That's the wise thing to do because then blessing rests upon your life. When you choose to throw those things to the wind, God, God says, I will not bless that. But that doesn't mean that the people in your family are done with you. Those should be the very people that you're praying for. Your child, your husband, your aunt, your uncle, etc. Why? Because God loves them. He's the 
good shepherd that when he loses a sheep, what's he do? Oh, I can handle 99. I don't need 100. No, he pursues the one. Too often, I think, we forget the one. My God, move us to pray for them and have passion for them. God, bless us uh, as we leave this house of worship that we might have the passion of the Apostle Paul. That can only come from your hand because it does not come naturally from us. Put it into our souls to have a deep compassion and a desire to save those in our, our lives by presenting the gospel to them, whether Jew or Gentile. And we thank you that you are a God that fulfills his promises, even to ancient Israel. We thank you that because you're that kind of God, we can count on you for the future.